Good morning. Happy Monday. I have Neuro Coffee in hand and it is perfect. All right. Got a big week coming up. I work in two-week sprints, so this is a pretty heavy-duty week, but it should be good. Um, so we're going to dig into this Q&A that I've been putting off a little bit um, because I had to shoot some video that goes with it. So there's probably going to be like some video here or we'll just cut it in and out. I don't know. I'll figure it out. I'm not technically inclined, but, but I'll figure out a solution here for you. Um, the question comes from Josh and Josh says, are there variations of the Camperini deadlift? I feel like I've seen where the front toes are elevated, the back heel is elevated, the ips lateral is loaded, or the contralateral uh, arm is loaded. Can you explain when you would use these variations? And yes, Josh, yes, I can. But let's, let's talk about why we would want to select this exercise in the first place. What we don't want to do is blindly prescribe exercises. We want to have a good reasoning uh, behind our thought process. And so what we're talking about here um, is, is an, an asymmetrical um, variation of a deadlift that is somewhat similar to a, like a single leg deadlift, but we've got a double foot contact. And what this allows us to do is it allows us to reorient the, the sacrum like the rudder on a boat. And if we have a situation where we're missing this middle part of middle propulsion. So we can actually divide middle propulsion um, into, into segments as well. And so if I break out the foot here, this middle range of propulsion is when the foot is going to come down to flat and it's where we have this tibial translation over the foot. And so we can bias and we can say that this is the earliest phase of middle propulsion and this is the end phase of middle propulsion. And through that phase is where we're going to see a lot of nutation of the sacrum. We're going to see a lot of internal rotation of the hip. And some folks um, are missing some of that um, because of the orient, the inability, I should say, to orient the sacrum appropriately um, because of some strategies that they're using in the pelvis and then the, the bias uh, of the foot. But this is going to affect everything from um, all of your activities where you need, need some form of nutation, like your deadlifts, your kettlebell swings, uh, powerlifting style squats, half kneeling, or, or even split stance activities. So, so this is kind of a big deal for a lot of people. But this is a really, really useful exercise, um, thanks to um, our, our good friend, uh, Mike Camperini, for, for experimenting in the gym and, and, and working on this. But um, so what we want to do is we want to um, alleviate the bias that's that's putting us at one end of this middle propulsive phase and so we can describe this with our pelvis <clears throat> a little bit and so um, essentially what we're, we're talking about is is this bias of, of the of the sacrum being biased in, in one direction or the other by this orientation of the pelvis and so if somebody is biased towards um, the, the early phase of this mid, mid propulsion um, typically what you're going to see is somebody that can probably squat to parallel, but when they do a hinging exercise, they look like they can hinge, but you'll see a little bit of a shift off to one side or the other. Um, they can typically flex their hip past 90 degrees, and you're typically going to have a reasonably good straight leg raise, so it'll probably be you know 70 degrees or more. If we look at somebody that's biased towards this later stage of the, of the middle propulsion, so this is right before max propulsion, um, these are typically going to be people that don't squat well to parallel. 
you're going to see hip flexion that's less than 90 degrees. You're going to see a very limited straight leg raise, um, in some cases 45 degrees or less. And that's because they've got this additional compressor strategy in this lower, lower aspect um, on the posterior side of the pelvis. So these people are really pushed forward um, in, in one direction. Um, and again, because of this concentric orientation of the musculature below the trochanter there. And so again, that's how we're going to divide this up. Is we're going to see somebody that's a little bit more compressed at the base, and then we're going to see somebody that has a lot more compressive strategy that's getting pushed way over in that, in that late propulsive strategy. And so um, when we're talking about how we want to modify this, we, we have two influences. We can go from the ground up and we can go from the top down. And so um, when we talk about the ground up, this is where our, our foot bias comes in, Josh. And so, so um, we can talk about biasing the foot towards this, this early phase of propulsion. So if I have somebody that's biased way towards late, so this is the person with the limited straight leg raise, hip flexion, um, can't squat very deep, I want to bias that foot towards its early, early strategy. And so this is where I'm going to elevate the heel. And so what that does is it moves that tibia backwards and that puts me in this early phase early phase of, of this middle propulsion. Um, so now what I want to start to think about, not just elevating the heel, but I also want to consider where I'm putting the load. So I'm going to put the load on the contralateral side. So let's just say that if we look at the video, we're going to say that the left hip is, is the, the affected hip that we're trying to influence. We're trying to move that, that hip towards an earlier phase of propulsion. I'm going to put the weight on the contralateral side. And what this is going to do is it's going to allow me to use the weight to create the reorientation. So I'm actually turning my thorax into the left side. I'm actually turning the, the sacrum to the left side by putting the weight on the contralateral side. So that's going to push me back towards my left back pocket. And so now I, I have a bias from the ground up. So I bias myself into early and I've turned myself into the, the left side. So now I've really reoriented that, that sacrum. So the couple of cues that you might want to remember is make sure that, that you're, you're inhaled before you descend and make sure you're exhaling up from the bottom. So again, we're going to try to reinforce this nutation with the exhalation uh, from the ground up. Now, if I am early biased, so this is going to be the, the person that, that has decent hip flexion, decent straight leg raise, and can probably squat to parallel, I'm going to flip-flop that foot orientation. So I'm going to put the, the toes up and the heel down, and what that's going to do, it's going to move that tibia forward into that later stage of the middle propulsive um, phase of gait, um, or wherever I may need to utilize that for my hinging activities. And so now I've got that ground up influence. And again, because I want to reorient that sacrum, I'm going to keep the, the weight on the contralateral side. As you can see, hopefully in this video here, if I'm technically sound enough to, to put the video in the right place. So now, when do we switch the weight over to the to the ipsilateral side or, or the same side as, as the affected hip, if you will. Under those circumstances, this will be after I've recaptured the hip range of motion deficits um, that I was trying to reacquire. So, so in this case, I'm gonna see an improvement in my hip flexion, my straight leg raise, my squat, and I'm gonna recapture the internal rotation through that middle, that full middle propulsive phase. Um, but if I look at the opposite hip now. So where we were talking about the left hip before, we're going to talk about the right hip now. If I'm missing external rotation 
in the, the opposite hip, in this case the right hip. Now I'm going to flip-flop the weight to the ipsilateral side. Reason being is I want to push with that, with that opposite side back into the left hip to actually delay the propulsive strategies that I have just reacquired on this left side. And what this is going to do, it's going to restore my right hip external rotation. So if I have a deficit in external rotation on the opposite hip, that's how I know when to switch the weight over to the ipsilateral side. Now, a little trick here, you got to be really, really careful because the weight will try to reorient you back into the old strategy. So we have to actually resist this. So as you can see in the video, I'm maintaining that left posterior expansion um, throughout the lift to make sure that I'm not losing the ability to delay that propulsive strategy on the left side. So, so now we understand the foot bias, we understand the technique, and we understand how to manipulate the load. So Josh, I hope that answers your questions for you. Um, it was a great question. Just took me a while to get to it because I had to shoot some extra video. But like I said, hopefully uh, that takes care of it. If you have more questions, please send them to askbillharmon at gmail.com, and I will see you guys later. Good morning. Happy Tuesday. I have Neuro Coffee in hand and oh, it is perfect. Q&A today comes from Tony. And uh, Tony didn't tell me what his qualifications are here. I'm assuming he is going to be something of a therapist here. He says, I have a runner diagnosed with right IT band friction syndrome where he gets pain with running in the lateral knee. We've made some progress, but he's still unable to run much distance without increasing pain. He doesn't have much pain with normal activities. Uh, he's got a bit of a varus knee, limited hip IR, pronated foot, weak gluteus meatus, but pretty decent dorsiflexion. Uh, when we work on these things, he gets better, but we can't seem to make the changes stick. Any ideas? Yes, I do have some ideas. First and foremost, though, let's talk about this little IT band thing. Um, if we go back to 2006, there's a, there's a pretty good dissection in the Journal of Anatomy 2006 where it's pretty clear that this IT band friction thing doesn't really exist because the IT band is attached to the femoral condyle. So if we think about IT band on the lateral aspect of the hip here, it's actually attached down here on the condyle. So it can't slide back and forth because it is fixed there. So if you look at the deep element of this, so um, the lateral intermuscular septum is part of the, the fascia lata. The IT band is part of the fascia lata. So it's not even a, an isolated structure in and of itself. It's just part of, it's a thickening of the fascia lata. So it is attached to the condyle. It does have this broad attachment that crosses the knee onto the tibia. So if we look at some motions that it may affect, it would be somewhat resistive of tibial internal rotation, um, which is going to, I think, play into to Tony's question here. But again, let's let's sort of eliminate this whole friction thing from from um, the the model because I don't I don't think it's very useful. Number one, and, and probably doesn't even exist. Um, so what we want to think about then is we want to start to think about how this extremity is oriented and where we are placing load or tension in excess over time, which is probably what's causing the symptoms in the first place. Um, if we think about 
the description that Tony did. This is actually a really good description, Tony. Um, when you when you talk about the the knee orientation, the limitation hip IR, and and the the foot orientation, it sounds like we're in a very late propulsive strategy on this right side. So so chances are this runner is actually landing in a late propulsive strategy. So we don't have this transition through through any of the middle middle ranges of propulsion where we would normally have relative motion. So we have a lot of things. That are, that are probably moving together. And so if we look at the orientation of the knee, we'd have to start up here at the pelvis. And so if the pelvis is getting pushed forward and to the right rather aggressively, we're gonna see this, this kind of an orientation of the pelvis where we have a pelvis that's, that's turning in this direction and, and so, far for, so far forward that we're in this later propulsive, propulsive strategy. So what's gonna happen as we would normally land and we move through relative motions at the knee uh, where we'd have this nice little uh, tibial relationship with the femur, we've got a, a tibia that's, that's moving in, into an ER position and we've got a femur that's most likely following it. That's what's giving that varus appearance of the knee. But that means that we've also had to, I, or, sorry, rather ER this 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 femur so we've got er we've got an er at the uh at the proximal tibia as well and so now we've got this big load that that's being driven uh, a little bit more laterally and so that's probably why you're getting that lateral uh, knee symptom to, to begin with so from a strategy standpoint we've got to start thinking about eliminating this this left posterior compressive strategy that, that's pushing us into this. So anything that would start to move us backwards and expanding this left posterior is gonna be a useful strategy to all your hip shifting activities. Um, something in the gym that I, I, I love to do is a staggered stance cable chop, which promotes this great left posterior expansion. If you look at yesterday's video um, on the, the Camperini deadlift where we were manipulating these phases of, of propulsion, definitely go there because that's gonna help you get get that left posterior expansion um, that you need. Now, having done that, let's say we've eliminated this, this left posterior strategy. Now we gotta start thinking, thinking right side because we gotta restore the relative motion in this right side. So one of my favorite things to do is, is crazy simple. I take people out of their shoes, I put their foot on the ground, um, I get them to feel first and fifth met heads in the center of the heel on the on the floor, so we get this this relatively middle range, uh, middle propulsive position of the foot, and then we start to bring the tibia over the the foot um, in in an alignment that would be in line with the middle of the foot. Um, what we're trying to do here is we're trying to teach the the runner to bring the tibia over the foot rather than. Um, landing in this this later propulsive strategy, we want to want to teach them how to move move through this by bringing the tibia forward. So this is not pushing the tibia forward. This is not trying to mobilize the ankle into dorsiflexion. What I want you to think about as a cue is pulling the tibia forward. If we had to pick on a muscle, we would say it's tibialis anterior. What the tibialis anterior is gonna do, it's actually gonna flex the knee, it's gonna dorsiflex the ankle, but it's also going to internally rotate that, that proximal tibia, which is gonna help me start to restore the relative motions, and that's gonna trickle down into the foot. So I get this nice little middle range of propulsion um, where the relative motions occur. I get that back, which is definitely what I wanna do. So once I can capture this, and it takes a little bit of practice um, to, to, to really drive this, and you'll get some of that nice little tibialis anterior fatigue. They'll get a little burning in the front of the shin. 
Um, now I can go out into the gym and I can start working on some things um, such as like half kneeling and split stance activities where I get a lot of this middle range relative motion. So I get the IR at the hip, I get the, the relative motion of, of the knee, I get tibial internal rotation, and I can start to drive um, the, the, the ankle again through this middle range of propulsion. I'm going to start statically. Um, we're probably going to drive, have a, have a resistance that's going to try to pull us to the right. So we have to create this resistance to hold ourselves through this middle range of propulsion. Now the thing I don't want to do is overdrive the, the hip internal rotation because then all I'm going to do is get another pelvic orientation problem that's going to be driven from the left. So I want to think about being square at the pelvis. So I'm going to level the pelvis. I'm going to try to create a bunch of right angles through the, through the hips and, and across the pelvis. I think I have a, a video on, on uh, right lateral knee pain um, that's already up on YouTube. So, so look at that as, as a reinforcement for, for what I'm talking about. But we're gonna start statically so we can capture these, these middle range positions and then maintaining that posterior expansion um, as we're holding these static positions. Once I do that, I wanna transition into dynamic activity. So now I wanna start to move, again, that tibia over the foot dynamically. I can still maintain my, my, uh, my right resistance so, so I can, again, teach myself to guide myself through this middle range of propulsion. But I would start with something like a front foot elevated split squat so I don't have the, the massive amount of load on that front foot. But again, I'm gonna work on driving that tibia rather aggressively over, over the foot. I can bring my foot down to the ground then in a regular split stance. And again, thinking dynamically of bringing the tibia forward and then finally elevating the rear foot so I get a little bit more forefoot or front foot load rather. Um, so we're just talking about graded activities here um, while maintaining the capacity to drive ourselves through this, this middle range uh, of propulsion. Now, a little bit about the foot because we've been talking about feet for what, two weeks now, three weeks now? So, so I, if I'm in this late phase of, of propulsion, I also want to think about some ground up concepts. And so I'm, I'm landing in a position where I don't have the relative motion in the ankle. And usually when I have this late propulsive foot strategy, it's because the tibia is translating too quickly over the foot. So the easiest way for me to delay this is to get a shoe that has a little bit of an arch in it. And what that's gonna do, it's gonna, gonna reduce the, the rate at which that tibia can translate, okay? Because a late propulsive foot, um, is very, very useful for high speed, high explosive activities um, because it, it, that's where I produce my highest levels of force. But if I land in that and I'm ER'd and that ER trickles up, then what I can do is I can end up with what we're talking about, which is this lateral knee pain, or I'll end up with a hip thing or a back thing. Um, so again, um, we got ground up influences. We've got top down influences to address here. But, but Tony, I, I think if you, if you look at this as a two-sided problem, and if you look at it as trying to recapture that middle range of propulsive strategies, it'll be much more useful. Have a great day. I will see you guys later. Okay, so, so we had a situation yesterday, not really a situation, because um, it happens all the time, but I, th I think the perception is, is that people always think that, that everything goes really, really well. Um, and it's all rainbows and lollipops and, and things like that. And, and the, the perspective is, is that if you're, if you're failing, that there's something wrong. 
and, and what you went through yesterday, it's kind of important for everybody to kind of get a sense of because it happens a lot and it's just part of the, the process. So, so kind of talk through what you were feeling yesterday because it, it, was, it was fascinating to watch for me as it sure always was. is. But, but anyway, yeah, go ahead. Yes, yeah, so it's a new patient and she hasn't really had a lot of conditioning over the last few years so she just doesn't have a lot of movement skills right. so we're going through some interventions and she's just not picking up on it and I'm trying to give her cue after cue and everything is just crashing and burning miserably <laughs> yeah. and you enjoyed every second <laughs> I did I did enjoy every second but every so every student you're, you're not you don't qualify as a student but but every student that 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 comes through here experiences that because I let it happen because it has to happen and and you just have to recognize it for what it is so that, that it is just part of, of a process but it also gives you information as to um, how many options you have in mind right and so you sort of like you use up all of your strategies and then it's like then where do you go yeah. You know, and I think that, that one of the, the things that people need to recognize in these circumstances is that it doesn't make you a bad therapist and it doesn't make them a bad person. Because I think that people get frustrated with patients a lot yeah. because you think you're giving your best cues, you think you know what you're doing, and then they just, it's not that they're not receptive to it, it's just that they don't have they don't have the background to even understand what you may want them to do. Mm -hmm. And I think she is one of those For sure. people um, where, where you could give her the best possible information and you gave her good cues and you gave her, like from a strategy standpoint, I think you were on point. But again, it just didn't come out the way you wanted it to at all, right? And so, and, and, and I think that ultimately we were successful before she walked out the door. That's another thing to recognize. It's like, okay, we just gave her everything that she could execute effectively, mm -hmm. right? And I think that's, that's the difference. Like, it's like it, it, we always have to remember that it's not about us. It's about the patient, and it's about you know, uh, how successful they are. So we put her in the only position that she was successful in yeah. and then allowed her to, to execute. Right? And so, like I said, ultimately, um, you can look at this in, in any perspective that you want. And as I always say, I, I go home with a big red mark on my forehead quite a bit where I bang my, my head on my steering wheel all the way home thinking, like, I could have done this, I could have done this. And, 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 but, but the thing that I want you to, to see is that, yeah, you failed and you failed and you failed and you kind of failed your way to success until you finally got to the point where you, you recognized the fact that this is the best that she's going to do today mm -hmm. based on her experiences, based on her capabilities, and then she will move forward and she will progress. You know, it's like not everybody feels like hitting a home run. And, and you know, yesterday was like the big K, if you will, you know, and, and, but you gotta, but you gotta go through that. You gotta feel that. And, and, and so, you know, all the people that have, that have been through the, the Purple Room experience, um, right now that are actually watching this will probably throw you a comment that goes, ah, oh, yeah, I had to do that too. It's just part of the process, but it never goes away. It's like, I, I experience this every day too. Um, it's just that from a perspective and, and having 30 years of experience, you just go, okay, this is just the next step. Mm -hmm. And it's like, okay, um, what I just told you didn't make sense. You don't understand what I'm trying to say. 
And then you just got to figure out the, the way that they understand you. And then, like I said, you find the, the position where they are most successful, right? Rather than, you know, kicking yourself for being an idiot when you're not, you're just, it's, again, this is one of the hardest things is this interaction between people. And it's like people can come on onto the, the internet and social media and they can talk about how great things are, but, but people also need to recognize that, that these failures are as important as the, the days where you really do feel like a god and you helped everybody and everything went exactly as, as planned. This, is, this was an important experience for you. Um, and you've been practicing, this is what people don't really, you've been practicing for a long time, yeah. but, you're, but you're trying to evolve something different. Mm -hmm. And that's why that, that, again, it presents an even bigger challenge. Um, and, you know, and, and so I, I tip my cap for you for not you know, you know, going off the deep end. You, you handled it really, really well. And, and but again, I thought it went great then at the end. It's just I had to let that happen. Sure. You know, so you do understand this. And then you, this is the lesson that you teach the next guy that, that you're yeah. going to help. Right? Yeah. Cool? Yes, sir. Awesome. See you guys later. Happy Thursday. I have NeuroCoffee in hand and it is perfect. Good morning. Welcome to the call. I have a young patient, uh, currently a senior in high school. He's a lefty, and he's got probably the largest Q angle I've ever seen. And he is sent to me status post UCL repair. And he's a narrow, and I already know, even though he's still in a brace, I know that he's going to be pronation biased. So I wanted to ask Bill the mechanisms that create the UCL with a presentation like that. The mechanism that probably created the, the, the injury tends to be actually the, the ER and then the prolonged supination during the throw. Yes. And, and what you'll notice is like, even though he's, he's oriented into pronation at rest, he probably shows a limitation in pronation. Yes. And what you want to do is, is actually um, take a look at how much pronation he's got proximally relative to the wrist. So when you grab his wrist and you turn him over into pronation, you go, oh, he's limited. It's like, get a little bit more proximal and see how far you can bring the radius over into pronation and then compare it to the other side. Because chances are he's got a he's got a radius that's bent, and then if you look, is, was it the picture that you sent me? Yeah, that's his carry angle. Okay, because um, if you look at his hand, you'll he's gonna he's gonna fail the apple test um, because he's he's definitely got a a hand that's also in relative pronation to the to the distal radius. So he's really cranking over into um, pronation rather aggressively because he can't access the position without a compensatory strategy. Wondering about taping somebody like this, like your twisted yeah. femur you tibia. Can, yeah, you can. Why not? Why not? Absolutely, absolutely. Just to just to kind of teach him to feel the orientation a little bit differently, you know, and. He's not walking on his hands or anything like that. So, so but, but 
but um, like I said, to, to, to teach him some of that, um, to reorient the elbow, arranging it. Oh yeah, we're doing real well with that. He's, yeah. he's ahead of schedule. Okay, but, but you can start to, start to retrain the, the distal stuff right now. Yeah, I started with your inner OCI mold. Uh-huh. Yeah, so you start there, um, and then you know there's a lot of stuff that you can be doing. It's like yeah, you know, did UDR. Yeah, when like when he's in, in when it, when they're in the protective phase, it's like people don't recognize all this other stuff that you could be doing that that is supportive. Like you know, people coming off a rotator cuff repair or something like that. When they're in the protective phase, people think that, that, oh, you just do like this little bit of passive range of motion or whatever, whatever, and then that's all you can do. It's like, hey, you got like three other limbs there that are going to be influencing the, the uh, capacity of the, of the body to, to be moving around volumes and pressures and changing shapes and stuff. It's like, and all that was an influence that probably perpetuated the need for, um, for the repair in the first place. So again, you, you, you always evaluate the person, not, not the diagnosis. So, so my, my concern here, do I, and again, you, you look at his radius and, and if you measure the pronation just from the wrist and you, and that's your, your representation of pronation, I don't know that's going to be terribly accurate because it, it's going to be limited, but I think it's, by the fact that you've got a twist in the radius itself. Sure, I see it now. But, but again, it's like every time you, you see a, 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 an adaptation that you perceive as favorable, recognize the fact that something else had to change for that to occur too, right? And so if I direct resources towards an adaptation, that means that something else is sacrificed. And it might not be an, it might not be impactful at all. But then again, maybe it is. And so this is why, but again, this is why we always evaluate the the human and not a body part or not a single um, representation or adaptation. We have to look at them as a whole all the time. Bill, I was kind of thinking about this yesterday. We'll go like back to basics. So you get counter-nutation of the sacrum um, and you get a retroversion of the acetabulum. Mm-hmm. If the femur stays fixed, when you get a concentric orientation of musculars on the front or in front of the trochanter, an eccentric orientation of muscular behind it, and then wouldn't that set up a better environment for internal rotation as opposed to external rotation. So you're weight bearing through the, the extremity? Yeah, so I lay just standing, take a breath, counter nutation, and then you get a ER of the of the ilium. Wouldn't that create like a like concentric orientation on the front and then eccentric orientation on the back? And then fluid shift would be able to go backwards. So the expansion within the within the pelvis AP um, would would do what to the issue? The expansion AP to the pelvis would do what to the issue? So, so I'm thinking like pubis being so pushed forward. Dominant is moving as a as a single unit. Oh. 
<laughs> you get this solid representation of the ilium, right? Right. And, and so, so everybody sees this. And they go, well, if the ilium moves, then this moves in opposition. Right. Yeah. So again, th so this is, this is a faulty model that, that misguides decision making, right? Because again, if you look at that, that's why it's so important to look at the iterations. I love that expression that you always give me the eye roll and the head tilt. That's like the best. That's the best. Like, oh, I recognize what's going on because because yeah. I need to have this compressive expansive trade. But but now think about this. So if we compare if we compare the a bone to a muscle, and then you think about if if I was to construct these two things and, and but make them rubber bands, right? it would be really hard to deform the bony rubber band versus the right. rubber band. But if I could, if I could, if I could deform it, the amount of energy that it would release relative to the muscle rubber band would huge. be huge. And it is. Like, so yeah. when you run and you bounce across the ground, that's, that's your skeleton. Yeah. Your skeleton's producing a heck of a lot of that force. Yeah. And those changes that you get in probably rotation due to compensations, that's probably, you know, for bone takes many, many, many years, whereas muscle you can, no. How long does it take? I don't know. We had a girl that, that made a pretty significant change in about four weeks. If you break a bone, Michelle, how long does it take to heal? Yeah, that's true. It's a good okay. point. It doesn't take that long right? You just need enough stress over time. Okay, so let me ask you this. So I got braces on, right? Um, you can move a tooth pretty darn fast. That's very true, yeah. So when you look at a, at a dry cadaver as a representation of, of, of human behavior, that's, that's a misrepresentation that, that is in a normal dynamic human. Right? So again, it just gets misrepresented as to what is possible. Good morning. Happy Friday. I have Neuro Coffee in hand and it is perfect. Okay. It's a good morning. Woke up this morning to check the box scores. Josh Lindblom, our, our boy at the Brewers, um, got, got his first win of the season, seven strikeouts. So a very solid appearance there. Also I've mentioned uh, Lomo, Logan Morrison, um, a pinch hit, one for one. So very, very exciting um, for both of our, our guys at the Brewers. By the way, you got to check out Lomo's Instagram. It's Lomo Graham um, if, you're, if you're a fan of coffee, baseball, and personality. Um, so check him out. We're going to lead into the weekend with a really good question um, that I think it will be helpful for a lot of people. Uh, it comes from Mikhail from Russia, so that's very exciting to, to have somebody um, send a question all the way from Russia. Um, it's a really good one, so here we go. If someone is standing on their left leg and the other leg has the hip and knee flexed to 90 degrees, um, and you see the standing leg turn into excessive external rotation and also abduct and extended, shame on you for thinking in the imaginary planes, but that's okay. Um, why is that? And then what do you do with this? So this is really, really useful because it's very similar to my load propulsion test. 
um, that I that I teach at the intensive, and it's it's also going to have some similarities to the Gillett test. So if you're one of those people that uses those those motion palpation tests, um, as if you're evaluating the the sacroiliac joint, <clears throat> excuse me, um, this will also be helpful for you. But let's describe sort of what we should see under these circumstances, and then what you're seeing and, and then we'll say well okay what do we what do we do with this how do how do we improve this situation and so what we want to think about is we're starting from a standing position so we're not propelling ourselves forward but we're sort of in this middle range of, of propulsion so we're going to create a little bit of a delayed strategy um, where we're probably going to be a little bit more inhaled bias a little bit more er and a little bit of counternutation so we're going to create a yielding strategy on this posterior aspect of the pelvis because if we're not propelling ourselves forward, we're going to create a delay strategy here in, in the pelvis. Now, <clears throat> if you recall, in this first early phase of, of hip flexion, we're still going to be in that ER bias, but as we approach 90 degrees, we're going to move towards an IR bias. So as the foot breaks the ground, and this would be our advancing leg if we were walking, we're going to create a, a, a bigger delayed strategy. So we're still going to be concentric yielding on this, this standing leg. So we're going to be starting in ER. But as we break that 60 degrees or so of, of hip flexion, we're going to start moving towards IR on both sides. So this leg will be, will be slowly advancing forward towards the, that really strong middle range of, of propulsion in, in the, the, the stance leg. And this leg is going to be approaching 90 degrees of hip flexion, which we also know is going to be IR. So what we should see is the pelvis moving from a slightly ER position to an IR position. So we're going to see some nutation of the sacrum under these circumstances. And we're going to be approaching that IR um, position. And so um, if you've ever worked with, with kids and you have to do A, a marches or A skips, and you'll see all sorts of, of sort of... Um, mobility issues or substitutions and you'll see them them turning into or away from their hips or you'll see some side bending these are the kids that can't really create this ir position of the pelvis where where they have to have a concentric pelvic diaphragm and they can capture this internal rotation which is the really strong propulsive positions and so again this is this is why this position um, becomes very very useful um, because when you start to see these substitutions, you know you've got somebody that cannot capture this internally rotated uh, position. Now, as we take the hip past 90 degrees, we're going to re-ER under both circumstances. So now I'm going to move this hip towards a later propulsive strategy. And I'm going to have this hip moving towards an early propulsive strategy. So now I'm going to create a delay on the lifting side leg. So as I break this 90 degrees and this goes into a deeper hip flexion. Now I'm going to see this moving into a much more ER position on this side. So that's what should happen. So I should see the ER, the IR, and the ER strategy of, of this normal propulsive phase. But what you're seeing, Mikhail, is you're seeing that very, very early representation of this this external rotation on the standing or the support side leg. So you have somebody that's moving into the later propulsive strategy too soon. And, and so that's why you're seeing this really, really strong ER position when we know that we should be approaching IR under those, those circumstances. Now, so the question is, it's like, okay, so what's going on over here? Am I seeing an anti-orientation? Probably not, because the anti-orientation would actually steal my ability to ER this hip. So again, most likely we're just seeing this late, this later propulsive strategy too soon. Now, 
So what do we do about it? Well, it just so happens that we've been talking about this during the week. So what I want you to do is I want you to go back. I want you to look at um, this week's uh, video on the Camperini deadlift because that's going to be the place where you're going to start. So we've got to reorient the, the sacrum. So if I have this, this late propulsive strategy showing up too soon, I've got a sacrum that's getting pushed way over and, and facing the right. I've got to bring it back to the left. Camperini deadlift sequence is going to be where you're going to start. Then you're going to move down into half kneeling and split stance activities so I can capture this, this really strong middle propulsive phase where I need to capture, capture the, the IRs. So now we have the normal mechanics restored where we have a sacrum that we can, we can reorient, we can move through the ER, the IR, and the ER phases of propulsion. Um, make sure you're addressing foot position as well. And I think that would provide you the, the best solution under the circumstances. So again, thank you for this question. It's a great question. Um, again, go Brewers. Happy for the boys. Have a great weekend, and I will see you next week.